Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Very special thank you to the sponsors this evening, Greenwald Extended Mishpacha, in honor of the yard site of Leah Bas David Bear. Here in the show, we should have an Aliyah. And also the Mann family, sponsoring for Mrs. Mann's father and mother, Shlomo ben Moshe, and Alta Chaya Bas Mordechai. They should have an Aliyah as well. By a show of hands, who's had in mind something they'd like to accomplish, but for some strange reason, they weren't able to? Being able to, to set a goal and actually stick to it is probably one of the hardest things we try to do on a daily basis. I'm just curious in the audience over here, if you had to choose probably the most powerful factor that could help you actually accomplish something, what would it be? You have something in mind, you really want to do it. The problem is, like many things in life, it's difficult. What's the most powerful tool we have in our arsenal to somehow get me to do it anyway? What would you say? Yeah? Motivation. Motivation. That's always a good one. A real desire to do so. Determination. Determination. It's also a good one. What's that? Need. Necessity. Ain Brera. Right, there's no choice. I have to. Consistency. Consistency. These are all good ones. Gavura. Strength. Courage. Yes. There are, I think, many, many things. Mr. Greenwald, you have something? Uh, a plan. A, a plan. Oh. A strategy. Right. Strategy. Not just the motivation, not just consistency, but a plan. How am I going to map it out? Beautiful. We find at the very end of Parshas Noach that Terach, who was the father of Noach, father of Avram, rather, he had in mind to accomplish something. He wanted to go to Eretz Canaan, to the land of Israel. Now, why did he want to go to Israel? It's not so clear. According to some, there was almost this intuition, this knowledge with Avram and his family that Eretz Yisrael was a holy place. It was a special place. So it was before Hashem actually gave the command to Avram to go. But uh, Terach wanted to take the family there. Let's move the Mishbacha. What actually happens, though, is interesting. That Terach takes Avram, his son, Lot, his grandson, and Sarai, the wife of Avram. And they went with them. That line is somewhat vague. 
but they went with them from Urakazdim, Lelaches Artsa Canaan, to go, meaning their goal was to get to the land of Canaan. But what happened was, they got to Haran and they stayed there. And that's where they settled. And eventually, the Terach, the father of Avram, never made it to Eretz Canaan, but he died in Haran. We look now in the beginning of Parshish Lech Lecha, and we have Hashem coming to Avram, giving him the instructions to go to Eretz Canaan. And we have a very similar wording. Vayikach Avram Lot ben Avram takes his wife Sarai and Lot, the son of his brother. And just like his father had in mind, now he himself had in mind to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. Avram made it. So both his father and Avram himself had the same vision. They had the same goal in mind. Terach didn't make it, but Avram did. What was the difference? There's a Svorno. The Svorno says, just a few words, but I think really hidden within these few words is an awesome insight into motivation in all aspects of life. The going out of Avram, when he left Haran, it was a different going out, it was a different journey in the very beginning than when Terach, his father, left it was a different mindset in the very beginning of the journey. He doesn't explain what the difference was. All the Svorno says is the fact that Terach didn't make it to the land of Israel, but Avram did, clearly it was all based on the Haschala, on their initial feeling towards this, this goal when they first started. And there's a Redak who really gives us more of the expanded story. The Redak actually learns that the reason why Terach wanted to go to Israel in the first place was actually based on the prophecy that Avram received. So even though chronologically, it sounds like when you read from the end of Parshas Noach and then Parshas Lech Lecha, that only after Terach tried taking the family to Eretz Yisrael, then Hashem came to Avram and said it's time to go. But according to the Redak, that's not what happened. Really, Avram received that nevuah while still living in Urkazdim. He told his father about it. Right, can you imagine that conversation? Dad, I have to share with you something. It's a little bit strange. But uh, Hashem spoke to me the God that you really don't believe in, right? But he came to me and he communicated a desire that I should leave and go to Eretz Canaan. And I figured if I'm going to go, we might as well take the entire mishpacha. Let's go together. What was the response of Terach? So the Radak says, Terach said, okay, you want to go, right? He was a good liberal Jewish father. He wasn't really Jewish, but... Listen, whatever makes you happy, if you feel that God's telling you this and you want to move the family, we're going to go with you. 
When the Pasuk says, V'yetsu itam, that they went with them, the Radak explains, they, that's a reference to Terach and Lot. They went with Avram and Sarai. They were the ones leading the journey. So even though it starts off by saying, V'yikach Terach, that Terach took his family, that's just giving him kavod, since he was the father and he agreed to go, that the Pasuk starts off speaking about him. But really, the leaders of this whole mission were Avram and Sarah. What happened was, though, once they reached Haran, so at that point, the Radak explains that Terach was feeling a little bit, uh, he wasn't so sure anymore. He went with Avram in the first place, not because he believed in the message of God, not because he was ready to embrace the truth of, of the vision of Avram, he went because he wanted to keep the family together. Shalom bias. But now things are getting a little bit tricky. He doesn't like being so far away from home. So he decides, you know what? I came with you this far. We're now in Haran, kind of a middle point. I'm going to stay here. You continue onwards. And, and we'll be in touch. I'll come for the Simchas, although he never came. Terech never came to visit his son Avram, even though Avram was one of the greatest, most well-known people in the world. So Terach stopped in Choron. So Avram made it eventually because he believed in it, he wanted to get there and therefore he did. Terach never made it to Eretz Canaan because he never really believed in the mission. It was never this burning desire within his neshama. <clears throat> Nineteen fifty-two. There is a young lady named Florence Chadwick. Does that ring a bell at all, Florence Chadwick? So she was known as one of the great swimmers of the time, and she attempted a twenty-six-mile swim between the coastline of California and the Catalina Island. Ever seen the Catalina Islands right off California? So she's getting ready for a long time. A lot of excitement building within her family and they're rooting her on. And she starts to swim. About 15 hours into this swim, she's really getting tired. She's really getting fatigued. Now as she's, as she's pushing her way through the Pacific Ocean, there are boats right next to her. There are people on the boat with rifles just in case sharks come. And just in case there's some kind of fatigue that she really needs help. A thick fog sets in, and she loses her vision, and she can't find herself. But she's pushing, and she's pushing, and she wants to give up. Her mother's actually in one of those boats, right? What's the mother saying at this point? <laughs> is she rooting her on? Come on, baby, you can do it! Or is she saying, get back in the boat, honey, this is not safe! It's cold out there! <laughs> so her mother's rooting her on, and she pushes for another hour, but then she gives up. She can't see anything in front of her. They pull her in the boat, and she collapses. The boat keeps on going, and they realize once they get through the fog, they were only about a half mile away. Like 26 miles of swimming to realize I was only a half mile away. And she saw the shoreline, and she felt such harata. Right? She felt so much regret, I could have made it. Why didn't I, she said? Because I couldn't see the finish line. 
Two months later, after training some more, she tries again, and she does it. But the same thick fog was there. So what made the difference? She had the shoreline in mind. And she explained, because I could see it in my mind's eye, nothing could stop me. So I think it's clear when it comes to motivation, when it comes to really trying to accomplish anything in life, the message of Avram Avinu in the very beginning, whether it was before he heard from Hashem or after he heard from Hashem, I need to have that desire to get to the finish line. If I have that clear in my head, I'll make it. If I don't have that clear in my head, likely I won't. If someone was to ask you, what is your purpose in life? Right, let's just get big for a moment. Anybody want to volunteer? How would you answer the question? What's your purpose in life? I just want to know more about you. I'm curious. What would you say? Isaac? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Aaron, anything? No? Isaac? A servant of Hashem. That's a good religious answer. Yeah. Right? Well, it depends who's asking. Okay. Okay. So if, if we're talking amongst, you know, Frumiyidin, religious Jews, and someone was to ask that question, I think the common answer would be, Anevar Hashem, I'm here to serve Hashem. We might say to do mitzvos, to learn Torah. Do we have to have a more precise answer? That's a pretty generic response. Right, if someone was to ask the entire group here, do we believe, at least conceptually, we are all here to serve God? Yeah. Right. We are all here to do mitzvos and to emulate the ways of, of the divine. Yeah. Okay. If we're going to stop at that generic, very broad, universal answer, that means we have part of the response, but we don't have the real answer. Every single human being, every single Jew, is responsible for knowing, why am I here? I as an individual, I as a father, I as a mother, I as a child, a sibling, I as a human being, what am I doing here? I want to read with you carefully, this is the, the first line of the Mesilas Yisharim, and for many We've read this hundreds and hundreds of times, and for some, it might be the first time, but I want to read it carefully together, source number six. And I think this will give us really a clear definition of what kind of, what kind of answer do I have to have to that question of what am I doing here? Says Ramosha Chaim Lozato, Yisod HaChasidus, the foundation of Chasidus, of righteousness. And the root of pure, wholesome service is what? So we have an aleph and a base, one and two. That I have to clarify and make true. What is, literally, what is his obligation in his world? To say that as if I was talking to myself, I have to make clear and I have to make true what is my obligation in my world. 
to make true doesn't mean I have a vague concept or you know my, my theory of life is but it's emis I view this just as true as you sitting right there and us having a conversation it's emis and it's not what is my obligation in the world or in Hashem's world but it's what's my purpose what's my responsibility in my own unique existence in my own little bubble of reality that's the very first step to reach the highest levels of chasidus of righteousness to serve Hashem with purity and with love we have to have clarity what am I doing here why am I here and then the second step is once I have that overall vision then I have to ask myself right where do I place maboto magmoso magboto is my my gaze and we'll define the terms in a moment umagmaso is my aspiration in everything that I do in every moment of my life the goal should be taking the broad vision of why am I here of what is my responsibility in my unique reality and then trying to ask myself every step of the way how can I apply that to life how could I implement this into relationships how could I actually infuse this clarity and truth into my service of Hashem that's what it all comes down to that's the beginning and the end of our journey in this world so but he uses two phrases Maboto magmoso Maboto is a vision that I'm looking almost from far away it's not seeing something but it's analyzing something we actually learn that from this week's Parsha. It says that Hashem took Avram Hachutza outside. Vayomer and Hashem said to Avram, Habet na Hashemaima. Habet, look into the heavens. Habat is gazing at something far away with real introspection, with real contemplation. Magmaso is application of that vision. So it's more of the, the pinpointing. Okay, does it make sense if I want to reach that goal? I have to swim 26 miles to get to Catalina. So what's my next step? Where's the current going? How's the wind blowing? Right? If I'm totally focused on the future, what's going to happen? I'll collapse. I'll be overwhelmed. And we find this so often with, let's say, young men who are learning and they have aspirations of accomplishing so much. And they push themselves sometimes too hard. And it's overwhelming. You look at all the svarim on the shelf. How am I ever going to get there? And, and I have, you know, this person I look up to and he knows so much. And that person, it's so far away. So you have to have both. You have to have the faraway vision. That's mabato. But you also have to have magmoso, which is what do I do right here and now? Very practically, to get closer to the finish line. Now we have in the bottom here really a list and these are just a few examples and some of these are somewhat superficial. But just to try to make this idea of the Ramchal a little bit more down to earth. When we speak about goals, you can really divide them. Using English words, you could divide them in many ways. But you could place them into three categories. We have a vision 
which is the broadest, this is the person I want to be. This is the mother I'm, I'm striving to become. That's the vision. Then we have the mission. The mission is taking the goal, taking the end, and trying to make it somewhat more realistic. What do I need to do in general to get to that, that vision that I have? And then when it gets even more down to the daily or the, the hourly routine, then we have to have real concrete goals. A goal is, right? For, so for example, the vision is being physically and emotionally healthy. It's a nice person, I'd like to be that, right? Okay, how do I do that? Well, the mission overall is I want to be more in shape, I want to feel energetic. You start pinpointing different examples of what that would feel like, what that would look like to actually accomplish that vision. And the third step is, okay, so what are my concrete goals of getting there? So the example would be, I'm going to exercise 30 minutes at least three times a week. And it's got to be real. So I'm, I'm, I'm picking the day. I'm going to do Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday from 9.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. And if I miss one of those days, I'll make up on Saturday night. Th those are the goals. Right? The vision is I want to be an engaged and loving father who guides my children toward a life of serving Hashem with joy. It's a good vision. Okay, and the mission is, let me focus on my children. Do I have that relationship? And if I'm picking up on some level of distance between me and my teenage son, right, theoretically that could happen. So what am I doing about it? That's where the goals come into place. Okay, he loves to go driving. I tell him I will, I don't always follow through. That's not a good thing for the relationship to build trust. I'm gonna take him driving Sunday afternoon for the next month. Real concrete goals to build on that mission to eventually achieve the vision of who we wanna be and who we think we can be. That's step number one in achieving, achieving life success, so to speak. Step number two, is that in order to create a real vision or to have a real mission or practical goals, the one caveat is we have to know ourselves. And that's always very hard to do. I get a, uh, a bill in the mail a couple days ago from AT&T, and I get things from AT&T all the time. And I never open them. We have uh, automatic pay, you know, so there's no point. It's just like a statement. But it turns out we were getting more, more of these things than usual. So we open it up, and I realized there's a cell phone number that I don't recognize. And it's charging me, and I don't know what's going on here. So I don't pick up on these things, but my wife does. She's like, we should call AT&T. Maybe something's wrong. So it turns out that someone has my driver's license, my address, my, uh, my social security number, they opened up a cell phone as if they were me at a Walmart somewhere in Florida. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I heard about this kind of thing before, but I was never the victim of it. Oh man. So what that meant practically today is I had to spend like two and a half hours working on this. And when you have a tighter schedule, I don't have time for that. 
You know, like how does that fit in? So we had to make it happen, but it reminded me of a quote that I saw from Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey wrote that we hear a lot about identity theft when someone takes your wallet and pretends to be you and uses your credit cards. But the more serious identity theft is to get swallowed up in other people's definition of you. Real identity theft is where so much of my focus and so much of my time and energy is trying to be the person that I think people will like, that I think people will respect, that I think you will admire. And there's not as much focus, time, or energy, or real thought and real work on the person I need to be. Archa Sadikim tells us that You'll have many people who want to grab onto good. They have this, this inner fire. They want to maximize their life and maximize their time. The only problem is they don't know what's good for them. And they're constantly thinking about different things I could do. I could change professions. I could be learning Zohar. I could be doing all these different things and I have this, a, a, a new picture of myself painted in my head. But they will never grab on to the good and the truth their entire lives because what are they missing? They're missing the intimate knowledge of themselves. He gives the example that you could have somebody searching for Ruvain. I'm looking for Ruvain. Where is he? I can't find him anywhere for years and years and years. Not, 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 not. Years and years. And it could be I passed him many times. The reason why I can't find him is because I don't know who I'm looking for. So if I don't know who I am, it's very hard to have a realistic vision and then to have the mission and then the concrete goals becomes almost impossible. The third step is to ask ourselves, how badly do we want it? Anything we're striving for. How much of a rutzon do I actually have? This is what I call the homework syndrome. If you ever see kids do homework, right? sometimes more likely girls than boys, they get home, sit down, take out their books, take out their calculator, and they just start working, and they do what they need to do, and they're done in 45 minutes, whatever it is. That was never the case with me, or I think for many kids. What ends up happening is you're sitting there, you have all your books spread out on the table, you have some snacks, you're getting up every three to four minutes to do something else that I gotta get done quickly and I'll be right back. And then it turns out the homework that really could have taken me 20 minutes is taking me like four and a half hours. Because I, I just can't sit here and focus. Why not? Because I don't want to. And therefore anything will distract me. If I have a real rut zone, almost regardless of where that desire is coming from, if it's coming from my love of this assignment, right? I just, I'm, I'm so in love with physics and I can't wait to sit here for 40 minutes and do the homework. Okay, that could be one reason. Or it could be coming from my love of basketball. I want to get outside and play before it's too dark. So that itself could drive me to sit down and do what I need to do and get it done with. But without a real rutzon, it's very hard to accomplish. The Orcha Siddiquim says in source number 13, 
midos haro that sometimes we are actually aware of ourselves, we know our, our struggles and challenges, and I would like to be different, I'd like to be better. <laughs> but because I'm not able to really engage sufficiently, I'm never going to get there. So the first example of Baruch HaSadikim is, I really, really want it. My Ratzon is outstanding. Nothing can stand in the way of the fire I have. The only problem is, I'm totally out to lunch. I have no idea who I am, and therefore I can't really help myself. The second example of Baruch HaSadikim is that, I know what I need to work on. I know my areas of struggle. I just don't care sufficiently. So number three is asking ourselves the question, how badly do we want it? Uh, there's a famous uh, statement. This is not found officially in Chazal and in Gemara Midrashim, but it's quoted from the Chida. And the Chida said, "Ein ha There is nothing that stands in the way of ratzon, of a real desire. Is that true? Nothing stands in the way of Ratzon. I can think of many times in life where maybe I wanted something very badly. I wanted to accomplish something. And it just, it didn't work out. It's a little bit, uh, it sounds a little bit silly to say nothing's going to stop me if I really want to do it. I still have dreams of being able to slam dunk. And theoretically, if I really, really wanted to, that still wouldn't make any difference in the world. And likely I could practice every day for five hours from now, the next five years, probably not gonna happen. So I can think of many things that might stand in the way of Ratzon. What does that mean? Nothing, nothing can prevent you from wanting. So the Pnei Menachem, he was the, uh, the Ger Eva, Pinchas Menachem Alter, he said a beautiful uh, insight into this Chidah. What does it mean nothing stands in the way of Ratzon? When I stand before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, after I leave this world, Hashem's not going to ask, hey, why didn't you do that? Obviously, if it was in my grasp, so I should have done it. But there are many things that even if I wanted to accomplish, it could very well be it wasn't realistic. And Hashem's not going to say, why didn't you do that? However, the question that I will receive is, Lama lo ratzitza? Why didn't you want it? So, Ein lachadavar obmid bifnei Nothing stands in the way of ratzon, explains the Pnei Menachem, that means nothing stops me from wanting. Nothing's going to stand in my way from having this overwhelming desire to grow, to accomplish, to come closer to Hashem, to find more meaning in the mitzvos. That much nothing can stop me. The fourth uh, principle is keeping your eye on the prize. And here we have a situation where we can all think into our own lives where so often we might want something badly, we might understand ourselves to some degree. And when we start off the journey similar to Avram, we, we're really motivated, right? We, we have this sense of enthusiasm. But then something happens along the way, right? Something distracts us. 
Sometimes because I'm so into what I'm doing, I lose sight of why I'm doing it. I think the classic example of this we find in Chumash, it says by the second of the Makos, that the, the frog started off as Tzfardeya. It was one huge frog in the singular. And Rashi explains that the Mitzrim, the Egyptians, saw the frog, and uh, their natural reaction was, kill it! So they went and they started beating up the frog. Hayumakino saw. Only problem was, every time they would hit it, it would multiply. So what did they do? They kept on hitting it. And Viter, and they further hit it more and more. And then you have frogs all throughout Egypt. So why did they hit the frog after the second or third time? If your goal in trying to, to vanquish this animal is because you're scared of it, it's because you don't want it here in your territory, and you're now realizing that every time you're smacking it, it's only multiplying, and you have hundreds of thousands of frogs coming forth. So just stop hitting the frog. What are you doing? But that's a great illustration of having a motivation, but then getting so caught up in what I'm doing, I forget why I'm doing it. Was it anger? Was it some other midah that was playing a role here? It's hard to know. But I think the overall picture is clear. We can't lose sight of why we're doing something. When we do lose sight, what often happens is, right, what we're trying to accomplish is greatly diminished, and sometimes it's the exact opposite of what we had in mind initially. My father tells a story that my, uh, my father and mother were at some anti-war rally in Berkeley in the late 60s. They're in a stadium with more than 20,000 people. And you have different speakers talking about how terrible it is having our troops in Vietnam. And then on the field itself, you have four or five people, brazen people, walking around with big signs, support our troops. Right? We believe in the war effort. So as they're marching around, the crowd starts to boo. And they're yelling things at them. And they're throwing things at them. So my father tells me that over the loudspeaker, a person says, Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to remind us all as to why we're here. We're here because we support the concept of peace. Let us not make war as we're supporting peace. They want to do their thing, we're doing our thing. Free country, freedom of speech. I think especially when it comes to education, when it comes to the area of chinuch, this is something that is very often missed. Remember we had the, uh, the Shalom Zohar from Machal, sitting around the table, singing some, some beautiful songs. And we started speaking about different hashkafa things, and someone had the question, why is it that when it comes to, to educating your child in Torah and mitzvos, that we're, you know, we take more of a laid-back role? Obviously, we daven and we try our best to make it meaningful and joyful. But for example, if a child, even though they're Hegiyah Lechinuch, they're the age of, of education, if they do something wrong, we don't yell at them, we don't scream at them, we don't smack them. 
if a kid was about to run in the street, what do you do? So depending on the age, but there could be that right age where you smack the kid. One of the few times that even the medical world would say, go for it. You want to scare the living daylights out of that child. If they're too young to realize the correlation between a smack and the street, then that's just child abuse. But the goal is they might be old enough to, to pick up on the fact, if I go here, it's not good. Why is it not good? So they don't quite get, well, I weigh 32 pounds, and the car is a few tons going at 40 miles per hour. That might not be good. But they do understand that I know if I go here, my father's going to smack me, and therefore I'm not going to do it. So shouldn't the same thing be true when it comes to Torah education? Show the child, this is just as important as life. This is life. This is spiritual existence. So I think the basic answer is because the goal, right, or the vision of Chinuch is not just to make sure that right here and now Shmuli is doing the mitzvah in the correct way. Or right here and now Leh is not doing something usher. And there are halachos, there are guidelines, but the general of the philosophy is I'm trying to bring up and inspire my child or my student on the path of Torah. And if I'm going to yell at them and smack them when they're not doing something right, then although it might be a win right here and now in a sense that I could make them do what I want them to do, I could, I could almost manipulate them in doing the mitzvah or avoiding this particular problem, but in the long run I'm failing in my vision. So we can't lose sight of the prize. We, we read in the Parsha that Avram tries to get back Lot. He does so with Hashem's assistance. And it says that he takes his trained men with him. And he's fighting against the four most powerful empires of the time. There's a machlogus in the Gemara. We have a debate in the Gemara Nadarim as to what did he do with his soldiers right before going into war. So one opinion says, Shehorikin b'Torah, that he showered them with Torah. He knew that this would all be supernatural, and therefore the entire Hevra, me and my troops, we have to be in the highest level possible. We're going to be learning Torah with intensity, with depth. We're going to be almost going into this war in a state of meditation. That's one opinion. Shmuel says no. Shaharikin Bezov, he showered them with gold. He gave them a whole bunch of money before going into battle. So why would he give money? And Rav was of the opinion he taught them Torah. That sounds like a good thing to do. It's all Hashem. Let's learn some Torah. But according to Shmuel, what's the point? You're going to give them gold, jewelry, money. Why do they need that? to go in and get back load. So Tosvos says in Chulin an amazing interpretation. He says, Avram was afraid that his disciples, once they would be in the thick of battle, it's urban warfare, you're going into homes, you're going to be finding a lot of uh, expensive things. 
lot of money around, a lot of gold and silver, expensive clothing. So they might become distracted, explains Tosvos, and just go for the booty, go for all of the riches, and not fulfill the mission of getting back load. That was the concern of Avram. And when you think about who were the people he was going into war with, it wasn't like you know, he went down to, uh, to Argentina and hired a couple of strong guys to help him out, guerrilla warfare. These were his disciples. These were the people that he was investing his whole life in trying to cultivate and develop their relationship with Hashem. This was Avram trying to spread the word of God to all humanity with these few hundred men. They were giants. But Avram was still concerned. You know what? You never know. Even though we're going in with a strong, clear vision, conquer them, get rid of them, get back load, return home safely, you never know what happens along the way. And this brings me to cats in the cradle. Right. One area of life that I think as parents, those of you who have smaller children or older children or no children, the, the, the idea of trying to balance doing for the family without sacrificing the family is extremely difficult. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do, he said. That's okay. What do I have to do? What am I spending all my time with? Do I think consciously I'm neglecting my family? Of course not. Do you know why I'm working so hard? It's because I love my family because I have to support them. So sometimes in the very thing that we're doing, which starts off as a pure desire to help and encourage and make sure there's bread on the table, that could be the very source of neglect. I'm doing so much for you, but because I'm doing so much for you, I'm not taking care of your most basic needs of actually being there to relate with you and to listen to you and to try to connect with you. You've got to keep your eye on the prize. Last but not least, I have my Ale Shore actually, Reuven, right behind you. Can you grab me the Ale Shore? The big blue book? Right there in the stender. Perfect, yes. The last step in these five principles is the idea of Seder. Thank you very much. Right? We could want something badly, we could have a clarity of the vision, we can know ourselves to some degree. We could always be keeping our eye on the prize, however, if we're not organized, then we have nothing. And this is something I do not feel comfortable preaching about in any way, shape, or form, because I'm not Mr. Uh, organization Man. You come into my office and see my desk, it's not crazy. But there's a lot, to, uh, a lot to do. But I think it's important for all of us to read these words of Revolba together. He speaks about the necessity of organizing our thoughts, organizing our space, and through that, organizing our life. 
Revolba writes, when it comes to accomplishment, we have to ask ourselves, Ma Anachnu Rotsim, what do we want? Hopefully we have a good answer to that. Not just servants of God, not just doing Torah and mitzvahs, we have to have a clarity and a personally defined vision, my mission and my goals to get there. Okay? Then he says, Nishalatzmenu, we should ask ourselves, Ma Nachnu Kafi Matzavenu Kais. Where am I right now? What's my situation? Can I actually bring into life? Can I actually bring into fruition all of the things I want? Can I create that person, that vision I have of myself? Can I actually do it? So we have to actually establish what is our Seder Hayom. What is the organization of our day and through that the organization of our lives? When do I go to sleep? When do I wake up? These are things that we talk about with our children often. But the idea of discipline, of being rigid with ourselves, it's such a foreign concept. But it's so necessary. It's not just with my 10-year-old, it's with me. I need to be rigid. When do I daven? When do I eat breakfast? And that's true for the entire Seder Hayom. Now every day could be different. And obviously, this kind of mindset, if not thought about carefully, can bring one to a state of insanity. If you get too caught up in every minute, every second. But part of the cheshben, part of living an organized life, is making sure that I'm also carving out time to just relax, to just be. I was speaking with someone, and she's um, an Israeli therapist who specializes in couples therapy. And she was telling me that in most of the cases that she deals with, one of the main issues is the culture we live in. She said, when I was in Israel, probably the 60s and 70s, and even now, much more than we have in America, there is a focus on quality of life. Quality of life means I don't need to be moving constantly to feel important. I don't need to make sure that I'm super, super busy, not having time for anything in my schedule, just to feel good about myself. To the contrary, if you're too busy, that means you're probably not doing something right. She said, when I grew up in Israel, there was such a thing quality of life, having time to schmooze with people, having time where there's no phone right here. The expression that Dr. Shapiro used was going dark, having moments in the day, if it's the family dinner, or if it's anything else where there's no technology around, there's nothing else that could be a distraction. Quality of life. So you have to make time for everything, including times where you're not thinking about your schedule. Revolba continues, Kaviyas hasedarim, when I'm establishing my routine, Srihalios kachshadim lo yargish et atzmo yoser midai kovol. I have to make sure that it's not more than I could actually do, meaning to say, it's got to be realistic. Ki maseder yoser midai meitzer lo. Too much order, too much legislation of time causes pain and anguish. It's a very fine balance. 
And what can that do? Very deep. That could awaken within me a desire to rebel. If I constrict myself too much, and that's going to stoke the coals of Merida, of that, of that wanting just to throw away the entire yoke and have no structure. But he concludes that Seder is the expression of Ratzon, which means if I really want something badly, then by definition I need to create a schedule. I need to have an agenda. I need to have times for everything. Otherwise, it's a pretty clear indication I don't really want it. And to have a schedule can be inconvenient. He writes, you might be in the middle of a conversation, right? It's time for bed officially, but, uh, but I'm doing something that I want to keep on doing. There's always exceptions. Sometimes you have to stay up till 2 in the morning to finish the project. But generally speaking, his language is, when it comes to organizing life, and when it comes to actually taking the ratzon, taking my desire and implementing it, this is the guiding principle. Action yatzliach. If you're stubborn, you will succeed. If you're stubborn, you will succeed. If I'm too wishy-washy with myself, then most likely I will not succeed. So we have these five principles clearly defined, not just a general job description of a Jew, but my vision of who I need to be. The simplest way of doing that is thinking about the different roles that we play in life and having that picture of the kind of mother, the kind of child, the kind of father, the kind of leader that I want to be. What are my missions to get there? What are my concrete goals to accomplish those missions? Number two was in order to create a real vision and mission and concrete goals, we have to analyze who am I really? And let's not get caught up with, with that identity theft of focusing on the person I want you to think I am, but really digging deep down, who am I and what do I need to work on? If I don't know who I am, no matter how badly I want something, it won't happen. The third principle was a rut zone. We have to want it. It may not always come true, but like the Pnei Menachem explained, that ain dover omen bifner ratzon, nothing stands in the way of my wanting, and oftentimes the wanting itself can transform me. The fourth principle was keep our eye on the prize. Even if we start off strong, sometimes because we're so engaged in the pursuit of whatever it is, we end up neglecting the reason why we're doing it. And the fifth principle, according to Revolva, is probably like he gives the example, if you have a beautiful pearl necklace worth thousands and thousands of dollars, if there's no knot that keeps the pearls together, you're going to lose them all. That knot is Seder, is organizing, is carving time out of my day, out of my week, to make sure I'm not overdoing it, I'm not over-legislating, but I have a realistic approach to the goals, to the mission, and to the vision. We should be zochet to accomplish our goals, and like Avram Avinu, to achieve the mission of the Jambasim.